Hey listeners, thanks for dropping in. I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. Welcome to Buried Motives. Today we're visiting Canada. That's right. I found a case that a lot of our Canadian listeners will know about. Is this your first Canadian case? It's usually me that does the Canadian cases. No, my very first case, Bruce MacArthur was from Canada. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) But that's so long ago. (laughs) Now I'm thinking about it. Have I done any in between? I don't think so. Really? Yeah, I think it's usually me. Oh, I like to travel more than Melissa, I guess. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Even if it is just in my research. She likes to actually travel. (laughs) Christy is an armchair traveler. I like to travel, but when I look in my bank account, I can make it to my living room on the budget (laughs) that I have. (laughs) But with drinks. (laughs) Yes. One in each hand. (laughs) We could do that. And a bowl of popcorn. Oh, yes. Popcorn is one of my most favorite foods. It is mine, too. I love it. Melissa makes really good caramel popcorn. Yeah, but my husband makes the best movie theater popcorn. Oh, he does. Mm-hmm. I haven't had that in a while, by the way. Hint, hint. Movie night. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> this Friday, actually. Let's do it. Okay. Okay. So tell us about your Canadian case. Speaking of movies, this one's like a horror movie. So I'm going to ask you, are you ready to be traumatized today? No. Too bad. <laughs> <laughs> Today's case is one that most of our Canadian listeners will likely be familiar with. It took Canada by storm in 2008, and it's one of those cases that you aren't able to soon forget. Oh, I think I might know where you're going with this. So here is your warning. Have you ever ridden on a Greyhound bus? Yes. Who hasn't, right? We all have. The Greyhound Lines is a bus company founded in North America in 1914 and shuttled people all over Canada, the U.S., and Mexico. Other countries likely do have something similar if they don't have Greyhound. It's just basically a giant bus that people take to travel from city to city. If you've never been on one, it has a long aisle with padded seats on each side that usually fit two or three passengers. They have a washroom located at the back of the bus, which as a kid I thought was like so cool that you could use the washroom while you're on a bus. (laughs) And most have TV screens like on an airplane to play movies for the passengers during long trips. It's an airplane that drives down the road. Exactly. The rides can take a long time because you make multiple stops to pick up parcels and other passengers along the way. The bus is super tall because it fits everyone's luggage and parcels underneath the seat area. You load it up from the outside. Most buses hold 56 passengers, but the amount can vary between 36 and 60. Although it had been a staple for Canadian transport for over 100 years, Canada closed all their Greyhound bus routes in May of 2021. So just recently, it sounds like a few may still operate in Canada, but just for border crossings between Canada and the U.S. So are you wondering why I'm giving you all a little lesson on Greyhound buses? Well, I'm not. Melissa's figured out what case I'm doing. I know what case you're doing, and it is disturbing. (laughs) It is. So I'm telling you about Greyhound buses because today's case covers an absolutely horrendous murder that took place on a crowded Greyhound bus. So are you ready, like I said, to be traumatized? Super disturbing. (laughs) Although I don't know a lot of facts about this one. No, I didn't either. I remember hearing about it in the news when it happened, but I found so much more information in my research than what you hear on the news. I'm excited. The randomness of this killing makes it especially terrifying because the victim could have been literally anyone. If you've ever ridden on a bus like this, then it could have happened to you. 
I watched a great documentary on this case called Bus 1170 by the Fifth Estate. It's one that you could definitely go and watch afterwards if you wanted to. They play it on YouTube, so you can find it there. It was made within a few years after the incident, so it just doesn't have the most updated information. But it is a good one that includes interviews with some of the other passengers and people involved in the case. I also found some court documents for this case, which is always exciting to find while researching. And I just wanted to mention that if anyone is ever wondering where we get our information for a particular case, you can always email us at buriedmotives at gmail.com. Absolutely. We keep all of our sources. Yeah. So let's start by talking about our killer. Vincent Weiguan Li was born in Dandong, China on April 30th, 1968. This was in northeastern China in the province of Liaoning. He went by Vince, so that is how I'll refer to him during the case. His parents were still living as of 2012. I couldn't find any updates since then, but as of 2012, they were still alive. He has an older brother who is a businessman and a younger sister who is a secretary. After what happened, wouldn't be surprised if they just pulled everything and tried to live under the radar. Oh, likely. Yeah. And I believe they're still living in China. Mm -hmm. Vince would later say that his siblings found out about what he did, but that his parents as of 2012 did not. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. So he was able to How did they not hear about it? I don't know. He was able to keep that from his parents, but his siblings did know. But he's born in 1968. I'm not sure how old his parents are. I couldn't find Mm. information. And maybe they don't spend as much time on the internet. I don't know how much the news in China would cover Canadian cases. But you'd think even his siblings would share that news with their parents. Unless they're really elderly and they don't want to upset them. Could be. Maybe they know now, but as of 2012, they did not. Hmm. Interesting. Mm Mm-hmm. Could you imagine later finding out like that this happened back in 2008 with your child? (laughs) There's always those times when you're like as an adult and you're talking with your parents and be like, actually, I did this and I did this. All these like little things that you didn't tell them before. And then if that came out. Oh, yeah, that would be awful. Yeah, that would be something I would maybe not want to tell my parents about. It's not the same as sneaking out to get pizza in the middle of the night. No. (laughs) Swimming in a fountain. No. No, exactly. (laughs) Vince was often sick as a child and was described as being fragile, but he had no history of mental health concerns. An uncle on his mother's side struggled with mental illness, and the exact type is unspecified, but other than that, there are no other reports of mental illness in his family. So disturbing, actually. It is. Obviously, it was really big in the media around here. Mm -hmm. And so because I know a little bit about this case, that is shocking to me that there wasn't more mental illness in his family. Yeah. And that he was a good kid growing up, no problems, normal kind of childhood. I know I've said it before, but these ones that are so random are so much scarier to me. This one's very random. Even the way he picks out his victim is so random. Mm. Vince was a good kid growing up. He stayed out of trouble and he got good grades in school. So no red flags growing up. Vince continued with post-secondary school and graduated with a Bachelor of Science degree in China. While in Beijing, China, from 1994 to 1998, Vince worked as a computer software engineer. He wanted to immigrate to Canada, so he also started to learn the English language. Vince married a woman named Anna in 1995. On June 11, 2001, Vince realized his dream when he and Anna moved to Canada together. He became a Canadian citizen on November 7, 2006. They moved around and Vince worked jobs in Winnipeg and Thompson, Manitoba, as well as in Edmonton, Alberta. Vince couldn't find work as a computer software engineer and ended up working more menial jobs. While in Canada, Vince joined a church and became Christian. He worked at Grant Memorial Church in Winnipeg for six months. 
his boss, Pastor Tom Caster, and I just had to laugh, Pastor Caster, I am obsessed. Because <laughs> when I first read it with Tom in there, and then I was like, wait, Pastor Caster? <laughs> like, that's so awesome. He had to become a pastor with a name like Caster. Okay, I'm done. I just had to point that out. So Pastor Caster said to CTV Winnipeg, quote, I think he would occasionally feel frustrated with not being able to communicate or understand, but we have a very patient staff and he seemed to respond well. He also said that Vince didn't show any signs of anger or other trouble. Vince quit his job in the spring of 2005 and went to work as a forklift operator in Winnipeg. His wife, Anna, worked as a waitress at the time. That's quite the job change. Oh, he does a lot of different jobs and will work multiple jobs at the same time. Which isn't uncommon for somebody that's immigrating to a new country. Absolutely. Yeah. And he was unable to find work in his line of schooling that he had taken. Yeah, in his profession. Yeah. Vince and Anna's relationship started to deteriorate, and they were divorced in China in 2005. So I read that they actually went back to China to get divorced mm. and then came back to Canada, both of them. However, they did continue an on-again, off-again relationship. Vince said they argued all the time. Anna said he would sometimes be gone for long periods of time. He would take the bus randomly and would ramble to himself. Anna also reported that in the summer of 2004, Vince went days without sleeping or eating regularly and was acting weird. He cried a lot and told her that he saw God. Thinking he was just overtired, she gave him sleeping pills. Oh no, you can start to see it beginning. You can start to see it, yes. And they just didn't really know how to handle it. He was hospitalized briefly at William Osler Health Center in Etobicoke for mental health issues in 2004 when Ontario police found Vince walking along a highway, quote, following the sun because he was ordered by God to do it. He was allowed to leave the center against medical advice and he returned to Winnipeg. He was diagnosed with schizophrenia, but did not seek any further medical help. So his schizophrenia went untreated. Which is just so sad. Had he gotten the help at this point, we probably wouldn't be covering him on our podcast right now. No, it's sad because it's a treatable disease, but it's so hard to follow through on treatment regime. Yeah. And he just, he wanted out of there. He left against their advice and never sought treatment. Mm -hmm. In 2006, Vince moved to Edmonton, Alberta. He worked at a fast food restaurant, which I heard was McDonald's. He worked at Walmart, Meatland Foods, and as a newspaper delivery person. The newspaper delivery boss said that Vince was reliable and hardworking. He also said that Vince didn't show any signs of trouble. After the murder, he said to CBC News, quote, I'm still kind of shocked and surprised, to be honest with you. He just never came across as the type of person that could do something like that. He was a nice guy. He was there every day. He did a good job. He was friendly. And really, we had no problems with this individual at all. However, Vince's mental health was declining. Coworkers said that he had a hard time talking to people. He would just randomly blurt things out. He was reportedly fired from Walmart just one month prior to the murder for getting into a disagreement with other staff members. Mm. He also had asked for time off from his delivery job to go to Winnipeg for a job interview. So he was making plans to go back to Winnipeg. But was there actually an interview? I believe there was. Oh, okay. Yeah, he seemed to have no problem finding a job. He was reliable. He was a good worker. In July of 2008, at the age of 40, Vince had auditory hallucinations of God's voice telling him to move from Edmonton back to Winnipeg. He decided to take a Greyhound bus to get there. Before getting on a bus, Vince went to Canadian Tire and purchased a buck knife. He later said he bought the knife because God told him his life was in danger and that people would try to kill him. Oh, there's the paranoia, right? Mm-hmm. Paranoia plays a big part in this. Mm. 
Vince boarded the bus in Edmonton around midnight on July 28, 2008. But then for an unfortunate twist of fate, he decided to get off unexpectedly at a stop in Erickson, Manitoba around 6 p.m. on July 29, 2008. So he didn't finish his intended bus ride. Just for whatever reason, he got off at a random stop. Vince reportedly sat on a bench with three pieces of luggage next to a grocery store for an entire night. He sits here for almost 24 hours. And doesn't sleep. No, he just sits there. Vince later said that at one point, while sitting on the bench, he took out his knife when a pickup truck drove by because he didn't know if he would try to kill him. So he was clearly paranoid. One witness said he saw Vince sitting upright with his eyes wide open at 3 a.m., A 15-year-old boy, Darren Beatty, came across Vince still sitting on the bench the next morning. Vince had a sign on his laptop indicating that it was for sale. Vince was asking $600 for it, but then took $60 instead when the boy said that it was all the money that he had. What? Vince later said that he heard the voice telling him to get rid of his possessions. So I guess he figured, well, $60 is better than nothing. Nothing. So he sold it to this 15-year-old boy. Score for the kid. Right? They assume that was his last interaction with another person kind of before this happened. Mm -hmm. And just a quick side note about that. The boy later turned in the laptop to help the investigation. And so an anonymous businessman apparently gifted him a brand new one for being so honest and turning it in. Oh, good for him. Yeah, because the police had to seize it when the boy brought it in. And when this man found out, he's like, oh, that was a good job, kid. You know, I'm going to give you a new laptop. Karma. Yeah. Good Canadian friendship (laughs) friendliness there. (laughs) That might be like the only good thing in this case. (laughs) Sometime around 6 p.m. on July 30th, approximately 24 hours after getting off his original bus, Vince got on a new bus headed to Winnipeg. Bus 1170. Bus 1170 had close to 40 passengers, including his future victim, a 22-year-old man named Tim McLean. So let's switch gears for a moment and talk about Tim and how he ended up on Bus 1170, essentially sealing his fate. Timothy Richard McLean Jr. was born on October 3, 1985, at the Victoria General Hospital in British Columbia, or BC, Canada. His mother was Carol Dedelli, and his father was Tim McLean Sr., They were divorced, and Tim was remarried to a woman named Nadine. According to his obituary, Tim had four sisters and two brothers. He grew up in Winnipeg and the farming community of Ely, Manitoba. Tim's obituary said, quote, Tim was very active. He loved soccer, football, motorbikes, and generally anything that would get him into dirt and trouble. He would always bring out the best in people with his charm and never tired of pulling pranks. Tim's appetite was legendary, both for food and life. He could never stand still. There was a whole world to see, and everywhere he went, he brought light and joy. I often wonder, those people that die so young, they have to pack so much life into their short time that you often hear people say, like, they were just so full of life, like he had to try everything and do everything. Yeah, and he really seemed to, Mm -hmm. because I was able to see some video of him and stuff, and he just seemed like one of those people that just had a real zest for life. Mm. Just totally joyful, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. On the Fifth Estate documentary that I mentioned, you can see video of Tim while he's on the bus. He liked to blog or document his trip by taking video. Tim had been working as a carny that summer. His friend Tiffany had called him up and asked him if he wanted to work alongside her at a traveling carnival. Tim, being outgoing and adventurous, was totally on board. She told him to pack for at least a week, but he ended up working most of the summer with the carny community. He was making good money, sometimes $1,000 a week, but they reportedly liked to spend their money having fun. (laughs) That sounds like a young person. For sure. In fact, while on the Greyhound, Tim and his friend joked that they only had about 20 bucks between them. Oh, no. 
<laughs> and they're too young to realize that's really crappy. <laughs> yeah, but they're 22. They're just having fun that summer, yep. traveling from town to town. And Tim reportedly loved traveling from place to place. Traveling was one of his life goals. He wanted to travel and be famous. Probably not famous in this way, though. No, and this is a little bit eerie because he actually tells his family that one day everyone would know who he was. Oh. Little did he know that that was going to come true, but not for the reasons that he had hoped. At the end of July 2008, Tim had worked the Klondike days in Edmonton. The next stop scheduled was in Regina, Saskatchewan. Tim had decided that he wanted to move to BC, and so instead of continuing to Regina with the rest of the crew, he took a week off from work and was going to head home to Winnipeg, where he lived with his dad and stepmom, to make plans to move. There's actually video of him where he's in BC and he's like, I'll be back, you know, oh. type of thing. Yeah, he's like, I love it here. You know, I'll be back one day type of a thing. So he really wanted to move there. And BC is beautiful. It is. And here's another chilling part that looking back, that kind of got to me. Friends had offered to purchase Tim a plane ticket from Edmonton to Winnipeg, but Tim declined. He liked taking the bus because it was cheap, even though his trip would be around a 24-hour bus ride. Oh, he should have took the plane ticket. I know. It's just all these unfortunate things that happened that put him on the same bus with Vince. Tim boarded bus 1170, full of aspirations with his entire life still ahead of him. Little did he know he would never get off the bus alive. It's so sad because he was so young. Such a good kid. Yeah, I have a 22-year-old. Yeah. It's just, ugh. yeah, the thought of this. She's not allowed to take the bus anymore. No. <laughs> Good thing she has a car. <laughs> She's supposed to be coming home soon. <laughs> Our poor kids. I <laughs> Because know. we do this, we're like, no, you cannot do that. that no. This could happen. <laughs> I'll give you gas money. You're driving. Yeah. <laughs> or I'll come Don't get you. Don't pick up anybody. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it's interesting to me to see how these two worlds come together. What Vince was going through, got off that one bus stop in Erickson, gets onto this bus, and then Tim had the opportunity to fly home. He should have been going to Regina, but he wanted to move to BC. And so they're both on bus 1170. It's just so random. It really is. Tim was settled in the second last seat. They had already been on the bus for about 18 hours when Vince Lee entered the bus during a scheduled stop at Erickson, Manitoba. Vince had a shaved head and was wearing sunglasses. He first sat near the front of the bus, far away from where Tim was sitting. However, after a short cigarette break, Vince decided to change seats. Stephen Allison was sitting with his wife in the seat directly across from Tim, so across the aisle. Stephen said that when he saw Vince, his stomach turned. He knew something was off with him. And Stephen reportedly had had a bad feeling ever since leaving Edmonton. Mm. You know when you just feel anxious, you have that feeling yes. that something bad might happen? Something's going to happen. Yeah, Stephen had that from Edmonton on. That's an awful feeling. It is. And then to see it come to fruition, I can't even imagine. It would teach you to trust your gut more. Yeah. Vince walked down the aisle looking into all the rows and finally chose to sit next to Tim. He said later it was because Tim smiled and acknowledged him because mm. he was such a friendly guy. Yeah. Steven said that Vince behaved oddly. And this is really odd. He said he held on to a two liter bottle of Nest tea and a roll of toilet paper. What? <laughs> yeah. And if he wanted to take a drink, he would hold the roll of toilet paper under his chin until he was finished drinking because he didn't want to let go of either item. Oh, that is bizarre. Yeah. So in one hand, he had the iced tea. In the other hand, he had a roll of toilet paper. And if he needed a drink, he just shoved that under his chin. Why do you need two hands to drink? Well, to undo the lid, take a drink. And then he would like grab back onto his toilet paper after. But rather than putting the toilet paper like in his bag or on his lap, he had to like be hanging onto it. 
Do you ever find out why he's carrying around this toilet paper? No. Okay. Steven was just observing that this is what Vince was doing. It's weird. Yeah. As the trip progressed, Vince started to get agitated. He started to rock back and forth and chant something in a different language. I'm assuming maybe Chinese, Chinese. but who knows? Steven said he was worried, but he didn't want to address Vince in any way in case he tried to hurt his wife. Stephen was sitting in the aisle and so was Vince. So they were right next to each other and he just didn't want to address him at all. He was being protective. Mm -hmm. The bus was dark and a lot of the passengers were sleeping. The bus driver had put on the movie Mask of Zorro for the passengers to watch. And this is usually a peaceful time on a bus. If you've been on one overnight, you know. You know exactly that ambience Mm -hmm. of the dim lights and the movie and a lot of people are sleeping. And that's kind of where we're at right now on the bus. Tim was one of the passengers who was sleeping. He was leaning against the window. He had his earphones on listening to music, so he likely didn't hear Vince chanting. The bus was on the Trans-Canada Highway, which is a highway that runs through the country, from the Pacific Ocean on the West Coast to the Atlantic Ocean on the East Coast, so you can literally drive it right through Canada. They were close to Portage La Prairie, Manitoba. They were about 20 kilometers or 12 and a half miles west of there, when mayhem would ensue. Even the stuff that they released on the news media around here was graphic and disturbing. So yeah. I can't imagine what it was like to research this case. It's very graphic. Yeah. So if you need another warning, here it is. We're going to get into it now. Vince said that God told him to kill Tim. So still wearing his sunglasses, Vince turned to Tim and started to viciously stab him in the neck and chest. Stephen, the man who was across the aisle, started yelling that someone was getting stabbed, and he ran up the aisle a bit to holler at the bus driver to stop the bus. Garnet Catton was sitting in the seat in front of Tim and said he heard a blood-curdling scream. He turned around to see Vince stabbing Tim with a hunting knife. He said, quote, he must have stabbed him 50 or 60 times. He commented on how calm Vince seemed to be. He said, quote, there was no rage or anything. He was like a robot stabbing this guy. Can you imagine waking up? Because they're all asleep. It's late. Yeah. And to wake up to that? To someone just screaming, a yeah. blood-curdling scream? And the seats on the Greyhound bus, they're high. And so it's not like you can look over it. He would have had to, like, stand up and... Yeah, you do. Yeah. You totally would have to stand up to peek at the seat behind you. Yeah. No, I can't even imagine. And for Tim to wake up that way, all of a sudden getting stabbed in the neck and the chest? That's terrible. Yeah. People started to shove to get into the aisle to try and escape the bus. People were screaming and crying, and some were even vomiting at the sight of what was happening. It sounded like more than one person. People were getting sick already. So mayhem just broke loose. Stephen, the man who was sitting across from Vince and Tim, said when he turned around to get his wife, he saw three people who were trapped behind Vince. Tim had tried to fight back, but had fallen into the aisle while trying to get away, blocking the way and giving Vince the opportunity to lean over him and just stab away. Stephen helped his wife and the three stuck behind Vince climb over the seats to get away. And I just can't even imagine how scary that would have been. And to be that close. That aisle is not very big on a Greyhound bus. No. And they're literally standing right behind them because Tim and Vince were sitting in the second seat from the back. There had to have been people sitting behind them. There was these three people and they didn't know how to get out because they are now in the aisle of the bus not just in their seats steven said that he could tell that tim was already dead he also said that vince had likely stabbed him between 50 and 60 times by this time alone so his account matched the other man's yeah the bus had pulled over and everyone ran out of the bus and looked on from the shoulder of the highway a truck driver chris allgaier saw the bus pulled over with all the passengers standing outside so he decided to stop and offer his help because that's not something you see on the side of the highway it's a busy fast moving highway 
Once he heard what was happening, he grabbed a large metal bar from the back of his truck and entered the bus with two other men. Reportedly, it was the bus driver and Garnet, the man who was sitting in front of Tim, to confront Vince and to see if Tim was alive. Chris said that when he looked at Vince, he looked empty. He then saw Vince kneel over Tim's body and start to decapitate him. When Vince saw the men on the bus, he started towards them with his knife. Rightfully so, Chris and the other men got off of the bus and barricaded the door so Vince could not leave and hurt anyone else. They knew Tim was dead. He was literally starting to cut off his head. This is going to sound really gross, but he has a hunting knife. So that's not a single motion decapitation. No. That's like a huge motion. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. Vince tried to get off the bus and was slashing his knife behind the locked doors. Everyone outside looked on in horror and unbelief as Vince then decided to pick up Tim's head and walk slowly up and down the aisle showing his head off like it was a prize. And it is like a train wreck. You wouldn't want to watch, but you would watch because you would just be in such shock, I think. Yeah. Vince later said that the voice in his head told him that he had to dismember the body and scatter the body parts or it would come back to life and kill him. Police arrived on the scene and decided to wait the perpetrator out. They made no attempts to get Vince off the bus. Police referred to Vince as Badger, and there are recordings of them describing his vile dirtbag actions. Why wouldn't they just throw like tear gas in the bus or something? Yeah, exactly. And that's actually in my notes coming up about the tear gas. First, police ordered Vince to exit the bus, but he said that he had to, quote, stay on this bus forever. Vince proceeded to chop up Tim's body and consume some parts as well. Oh, gross. And this took hours. From what I could tell, the police were called around 8.30 p.m. And Vince wouldn't be apprehended until about 1.30 a.m. in the morning. Oh, that poor family. The desecration that he caused to the body is awful. It is so disturbing. So for five hours, he was left on the bus with this body. The truck driver, Chris, felt the same way as you. He later said that he couldn't understand why the police didn't just shoot Vince or fill the bus with a strong tear gas to stop him. And I wondered that as well. It could have prevented more trauma to the other passengers watching this ordeal take place and preserved the body of Tim. Hopefully they weren't standing out watching the five hours. No, but for a long time. Yeah. They all saw the head. They saw him cutting off body pieces. They saw him eating. It was horrific. At one point, Vince had tried to drive the bus away, but they had already disabled the engine. That is smart. It is quite smart. Yeah. Finally, Vince decided to try and escape through a window in the back of the bus. The RCMP, or the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, tasered him twice and were then able to restrain and arrest him. He must have been a sight. Oh, yeah. To come out of that window all blood covered. and Yeah. And I hadn't put this in here, but he even had blood smeared all over his face yeah. and stuff from, from eating, eating it. Yeah, he was just covered the because the body oh. was so mutilated. He had five hours in that bus with that body. And he fully believed that he had to cut it up and put the pieces all over the place so that it wouldn't come back together and come back to life and kill him. So apparently, as you can imagine, the inside of the bus was worse than a horror movie scene. That would have been not a nice crime scene to clean up. (laughs) Blood and body parts were everywhere. Parts of Tim's body were placed in plastic bags and taken off the bus. Tim's ears, nose, and tongue were found inside Vince's pockets. What? Mm -hmm. Tim's eyes were never found. Police suspect that Vince had eaten them along with about a third of his heart. Oh, that's gross. Yeah, sorry. I told you it was gruesome. Before I go into too much into the aftermath of this event, I wanted to touch on how Tim's parents found out about their son. And this just gives me the chills. So Carol, Tim's mom, heard about the incident on the news the next morning. 
she thought her son had arrived in Winnipeg previously and had no idea that the news reporters were talking about her son. She worked or volunteered at a senior center and went about her day. She cooked the seniors pork for dinner. And when grace was said, they prayed for the young man's family from the Greyhound bus. Again, not knowing that the family they were praying for was hers. She remembers making the comment about how that could have been her son, but he would have gotten to Winnipeg two days ago. So, you know, when you hear about something like that and you're like, oh my goodness, that could have been my son. Yeah. And little did she know. Plus, wouldn't you assume that if it was your son, you would have been Been notified notified? already? Yeah. Yeah. She had not been because he got apprehended about 1.30 in the morning. She heard it on the morning news and they had it on the news and stuff at dinner time because it was was big news. time to notify the family. There was. Tim's father, Tim Sr., said that he had picked up fried chicken for his son in anticipation of him arriving. Fried chicken was one of his favorites, so that's what he had picked up. When he arrived back home, some of Tim's friends were waiting for him at his house. They asked him if he had seen the news. He hadn't. They took him inside and turned on his computer and showed him the headlines, breaking the news that his son was the murder victim. That's a horrible way, actually, to do that. I think they could have told them without the visual. Yeah. They're probably all in shock and stuff, too. Probably. Who knows how to handle these situations when you're actually in them. That's right. Yeah. It's just such a crazy time. And I was even thinking, even the little things like, I wonder when the next time he could have picked up a bucket of chicken. Mm -hmm. You know, because you would associate little things like that. Yeah. Even his mom going to work that day, making pork chops, talking to those people. Those could all be triggers later on to bring Mm -hmm. all that back. Tim's father said that their lives have been upside down ever since. Around 7.30 p.m., Tim Sr. made the heartbreaking call to his ex-wife to tell her what had happened to their son. So that's how she found out. Carol says that hearing the news was too horrific for her mind to comprehend and accept. She just remembers shouting no over and over again. Tim's stepmom spoke about how her husband couldn't even say goodbye to his son. She knew the medical examiner personally and asked her if there was any way that he could hold his hand, see his face, or even touch a foot for some type of closure. The answer was no. No. There wasn't enough left of Tim to be able to hold on to, so they didn't get to say goodbye. At first, Vince turned away a lawyer and allegedly just wanted to be put to death. It was reported that he was actually upset when he learned that Canada didn't have the death penalty. He should have done his research. (laughs) I guess he wasn't researching anything at that time. (laughs) No, this was not premeditated. He hadn't planned it. And because it wasn't premeditated, he was being charged with second degree murder. His trial started on March 3rd, 2009. It was clear that a psychiatric assessment needed to be performed on Vince Lee. Dr. Stanley Yaron, Manitoba's chief forensic psychologist, interviewed Vince around 19 times before making his assessment. Well, he did his due diligence to make sure that he understood everything. Yeah. He recognized that Vince believed he heard a voice from God telling him that Tim was a force of evil and was about to execute him, so he had to act quickly and protect himself. Dr. Yaron said, quote, In response to that, in a state of panic and fearful for his life, he carried out the acts that he did. Mr. Lee did not understand he was killing an innocent bystander. He did not understand his actions were wrong. Vince's lawyers advised him to enter a plea of not guilty, claiming he was not criminally responsible because he is mentally ill, and Dr. Yaron agreed. However, when arrested, Vince told officers that he was guilty, he was sorry, and please kill me. Vince told Dr. Yaron, quote, I am the evil son of an evil God. God chose me as the killer and chose Tim McLean as the victim. You could have brief moments of clarity and still not be sane, though. For sure. Yeah. Dr. Yaron was quoted saying, quote, It would be in some sense easier if Mr. Lee was an antisocial psychopath with a history of malicious behavior. But he isn't that. He is, as I've come to know him, a decent person. 
He is as much a victim of this horrendous illness as Mr. McLean was a victim. The presiding judge accepted the diagnosis and found Vincent Lee not criminally responsible for the death of Tim McLean. Vince was sent to the Selkirk Mental Health Center under the care of Dr. Kremer, and it would be up to the Manitoba Review Board to determine whether he gets released and when. This outraged family, friends, and even the general public. Mm -hmm. People were upset that this happened. Do you remember? Mm-hmm. I have empathy towards the situation and its mental illness, but it still doesn't seem right. It doesn't. No. No, I agree. Tim's mother said she wants the law changed, so even those who are found criminally not responsible for their actions will still serve time in prison. She is working towards Tim's law, which is a not criminally responsible reform act. Well, maybe not jail, but at least they have to stay in a facility. Right. They don't get to get out and walk the streets free. Yeah, there needs to be more of a criteria there. I agree. Because right now when he's in there, it's just up to... Well, it's not even a parole board. No, it's up to the Manitoba Review Board to decide when or if he gets out. It would be always on your mind. Is he going to get out this year? Is he going to get out this month? If they have a sentence and you know he's for sure spending a minimum amount of time, that would help with some of the healing, I think. Yeah. She said the family is in an endless state of grief. She also claims that the RCMP are partly responsible for her son's mutilation. She said, quote, this individual ate my child's eyes and a third of his heart, and they allowed that to continue. And I'm supposed to be okay with that? I'm not okay with that. I would agree. Me too. Why did they not intervene I don't know, five hours? Surely they could have come up with some way into the bus or something. And he had a knife. It's not like he had all this like gun power there with him. Right. But we often think that the police have this rule book that in this situation we do this. They could have been just as shocked and like thrown off by what they were viewing as other people. For sure. And a lot of them, I'll talk about one in particular who was totally traumatized. Yeah. I mean, they do have training to think in unusual circumstances. Right. But that's beyond unusual. It is. And like I said, you can hear them referring to him as Badger and they're describing what he's doing. So I'm assuming that that would be going to whoever's in charge. You know, not everybody who's listening to that is likely right there on the scene. No. Right. They're not there without external help from the police force. And so why did nobody suggest that? Why did they just wait him out? Yeah. Why are we not tear gassing this guy? They would have had a clear shot of him. You know, once they got all the passengers redirected, it's all windows. And he had no problem walking in front of the windows and showing them what he was doing. And it just makes the death that much more horrific for the family. It would. Yeah. Because they didn't even have a full body to claim. No. Stephen, the man who sat across the aisle from Vince, said authorities should ensure that he is never able to harm anyone again. He said, quote, I think he should go away for a very long time. Even if he does believe it and with something beyond his control, he still allowed it to happen. He still did it. You've got to pay for what you do. You can't take a life and expect to have nothing bad happen to you. It's true. And there's no saying that he goes off his meds again and he doesn't do something like that again. Right. And we know nobody's going to be monitoring if he's on his meds or not. Yeah. We just don't have funding for that. No. And most countries don't. Greyhound paid $450 for six counseling sessions for Stephen and his wife. I'm not sure if they did this for other passengers, but I would hope so. But he did say six was not enough. And no, they, absolutely yeah. not. And I think he was 20 at the time and new wife, like they did not have the money to pay for counseling on their own. Tim's family also blamed the Greyhound bus for letting a man onto the bus with a knife and filed a lawsuit against them. And I couldn't find any other information on this. So I'm assuming it could maybe still be standing that lawsuit. I don't know. Or it was settled and paid out of court. Maybe it was a settled. Yeah, I'm not sure. I just couldn't find anything else about that one. 
Greyhound said that they have done everything they can with the resources available and that there was no way the events that unfolded on bus 1170 could have been predicted. I don't think they could have been predicted either. No. And how many people carry hunting knives? Like that's a common thing. Right. Especially in Alberta. He's leaving from Alberta. Yeah. Lots of hunters there. Or even in Winnipeg where he got on the bus again. That's a common thing. It is. Yeah. I don't think they could have predicted that at all. They're not checking your bags and going through your bags. And this is 2008. They for sure weren't then. No, not at the little Greyhound bus stations where they have them out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. And it's such a violation of your sense of safety, right? Because we feel like when we get onto a bus that we should be safe. You know, Mm -hmm. I don't think Greyhound was responsible for it, but yeah, I just can't even imagine the people that were on there, how that would affect you afterwards. You know, you go to get your groceries. You're not fearing for your life. When you get on a Greyhound bus, you're not fearing for your life, right? You go to a movie, you're not fearing for your life. No. And these people had no idea that this was going to happen. But Greyhound didn't either. No, Greyhound didn't either. And I mean, this is almost comical, but it's not. I read that during this attack, Greyhound had a series of nationwide ads that included the line, quote, there is a reason you've never heard of bus rage. Mm -hmm. That was their ad campaign at that time. Yeah, that's what I read. I wonder if it was pulled down immediately after. Yes. A week after the attack, they had pulled all the ads. Mm -hmm. Yeah, not good publicity. (laughs) Greyhound also took all the passengers to a nearby store after the attack and purchased them new clothing before rerouting them home. The aftermath of this life-altering event has been especially hard on the bystanders and the passengers who witnessed the vile acts of Vince Lee. Two passengers filed a lawsuit against Vince, the RCMP, Greyhound, and the Government of Canada. Each were seeking $3 million in damages, but the suit was dropped in 2015. Stephen, the one who was across the aisle, was an honor student prior to witnessing the attack, and afterwards he could barely make it through a class. He hardly spoke to anyone because he was so paranoid of strangers. He said at the time of his interview that he still has flashbacks and nightmares. He said, quote, seeing that is not something you get over quickly. It's made me a shell of my former self. I'm trying to get back to normal, but it's hard. Stephen's wife, who had been paralyzed in fear, was reportedly prescribed antidepressants after the event. She was the one that was just standing yeah. there with the three traps. She just froze, didn't know what to do. The truck driver, Chris, had to quit his job. He also became paranoid, suffered from PTSD, and avoids crowds of people. He says he has never stopped mourning the death of Tim McLean and that his PTSD exhibits itself as rage and alcoholism. He said, quote, I've become an alcoholic to help me sleep at night. I know better, and I don't think my reaction is surprising to anyone. However, I hate what challenges me daily now. I read other accounts of some of the passengers developing problems with addiction after watching the slaughter of Tim McLean. And I even read that one of the officers sadly later committed suicide after not being able to handle what he experienced on the scene. That's so sad. Yeah, I know we've talked about this before, but the victims just are so far reaching. Mm -hmm. One of the female passengers who suffers from mental illness gave birth years after the attack, but had her baby apprehended by social workers because of how severe her PTSD was after witnessing Tim's death. The baby was in foster care for the first 18 months of its life before being returned to its mother and grandmother. And eventually the courts gave full custody to the grandmother, but encouraged generous and reasonable access to the mother. She needs help with decision making and caring for the child. She says she has come to develop some empathy for Vince. She said, quote, in some sense, yes, I forgive him. I've been able to normalize that he is a person with mental illness. It doesn't give him a free pass. 
but it gives a little better understanding of what's going on. Mm-hmm. To me, Vincent Lee is not a monster. He's just someone that unfortunately went through an undiagnosed mental illness. It was more of an untreated illness. Untreated I would say, illness. Right? Yeah. On a somewhat brighter note, Tim had a son born five months after his death on December 21st, 2008. Tim's mom said he is a gift from God sent by her son to give her a reason to get up every day. Hmm. And I wondered if you do go and watch that documentary, Tim talks on there about how he just got some exciting news. And, and that was his news? I and that's know. why he had to go home to Manitoba? Yeah. I don't know. And then You're go back and cry. live in BC? Yeah. So I don't know for sure. When I read this, I thought, oh, I bet it was. I don't know if they were still together, his girlfriend, but that she was pregnant and he found out that he was Mm -hmm. expecting a child. On a sadder note, there have been bitter custody battles between Tim's mom, Carol, and the boy's mother, Colleen. And the courts granted Carol custody in 2016. What? But reportedly, even Tim's father has a hard time being allowed to see his grandson. So I'm not sure what's going on there, but thought it was worth mentioning. And I just feel like it makes a terrible situation that much more tragic when people withhold relationships from the children involved. And we see this happen more often than we'd like. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm not sure why that's happening or if that's been rectified since then. I don't Mm -hmm. know. So just a whole lot of aftermath. And I'm sure there's lots of stories that I haven't even touched on on some of the passengers and the first responders and people that encountered this. The effects are just so far reaching. We're talking about into the next generation now. Yeah. Yeah. It would be such a fear to be in crowds because it was so random that it could happen anywhere. You have such a distrust of anybody approaching you on the street. Right. That PTSD would be something fierce for sure. It would be so scary. Yeah. On June 3rd, 2010, Vince was granted supervised outdoor walks within his mental health facility. So it's not like he has full control. Like he's not just walking free, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was a locked down medical facility. On May 19th, 2012, Chris Somerville, who is the CEO of the Schizophrenia Society of Canada, released an edited interview with Vince Lee to the press. So meaning it was condensed for length, not that it was edited to change any of the statements. He had been visiting with Vince every other month for about four years prior to releasing this. Vince gave written permission for his interview to be shared. Before sharing his interview, Chris Somerville stated, quote, What we have here are two victims and two families who are victims of untreated, uncontrolled psychosis. Before I do any interview regarding the Greyhound bus tragedy, I always ask myself, what if it had been my 25-year-old daughter? My sympathy to Miss Dedeli and her family are real. And yet I also ask, what if it had been my son who killed Tim McLean in such a ghastly and grotesque fashion? I hope that such self-questioning softens my response to the many questions I have been asked about my personal and professional knowledge of Mr. Lee. There are no easy answers to the many faceted questions that bombard both families and the media. However, I think the media has been more favorable to the McLean family, probably because public sentiment is on their side, and we as a country have entered a period of tough-on-crime with little attention paid to restorative justice, rehabilitation, recovery and redemption or the influence and role of mental illness in this particular most unfortunate incident yeah I'm still the heart on crime <laughs> I know I can see I can see Melissa's face I do think that rehabilitation is an important thing I think a Absolutely. lot of countries don't right just we'll throw them in the slammer when they're done put them back on the streets and they're probably worse but this is a tough one this is a really tough one if that was my loved one that that had happened to no you would never want to see Vince roam the streets So I thought I'll share just parts of the interview. I picked a few questions. 
and so we can hear right from Vince's mouth himself about what happened. Why did you do what you did on the bus? He said, I bought a knife at Canadian Tire. I bought it for any emergency for the journey to protect myself from the aliens. I was really scared. I remember cutting off his head. I believed he was an alien. The voices told me to kill him, that he would kill me or others. I do not believe this now. I was totally wrong. It was my fault. I sinned, but it was the schizophrenia. What else do you remember about the incident? I try to forget it. I try to stay busy here. It is painful to think about. How do you feel about what happened? I feel nervous. I feel painful. I'm embarrassed. It was wrong. Do you understand why people are scared of you? Yes. I don't think I will ever do it again. I don't know at that time I had schizophrenia. Now I do. What would you say to Miss Dedali and Tim McLean's family? I am really sorry for what I did. If I could talk to her directly, I would do anything for their family. I would ask forgiveness, but I know it would be hard to accept. Do you think you're getting better? Yes, my thinking is becoming normal. I don't think weird things. I take my medication, olanzapine, every day. I am glad to take it. I don't have any weird voices anymore. Some say that the RCMP should have killed you that night. He said, I should have been killed at that time. I still believe that, but I am thankful that the RCMP didn't. Do you believe you should be under a treatment order? I should be here. I should be under a treatment order. If you ever got out of Selkirk Mental Health Center, what would you do? I hope to leave one day, but I have to make sure it wouldn't happen again, that there would be no voices. I would change my name to be anonymous, but I would still be in touch with my doctor. What do you think of Tim's law that any mentally insane person who kills someone should never be released? I don't think so, that that should happen. Mental illness is an illness. It is treatable. My schizophrenia is not the real me, but it is an illness. Are you happy? No. Will you ever be happy? No. I can never forget the Greyhound bus. Any final words? I would like to say to Tim McLean's mother, I am sorry for killing your son. I am sorry for the pain I have caused. I wish I could reduce the pain. Once he's released, there's no way for us to guarantee he takes his meds no. to stop it from happening no. again. No, and I think it's interesting. He's like, no, I should be here. Yeah. No, the RCMP should have killed me. Yeah. Like he's thinking logically enough that he's agreeing with those statements. Chris Somerville continued to state that of the 300,000 people in Canada who live with some form of schizophrenia, the vast majority lead quiet, law-abiding lives, hoping for some quality of life. People living with schizophrenia are more likely to be victims of violence rather than being perpetrators of violence. Schizophrenia is treatable. Recovery is possible. I would disagree with that. Would you? Yeah, I think it's totally treatable. I don't think it's recoverable. Hmm, that's interesting. So they're calling recovery just improving to a point where they can work and live on their own. Okay, so that makes sense because that is possible then. Yeah. That you can live a healthy life with schizophrenia. Yes, that yeah. part I totally agree with, but you will always have schizophrenia. Almost exactly three years after this interview was published, Vincent Lee was released from the mental health facility in Manitoba on May 8th of 2015. He changed his name to Will Lee Baker and lives a free man in a Manitoba community and by all reports has continued to be a law-abiding citizen. Chris Somerville said, quote, he has been a model citizen. He lives every day with remorse about what he did, and he knows that, and he knows it was atrocious, and he will never forgive himself. And hopefully he does something good with his life. Hopefully. Like gives back. Yep. And we Somehow. have seen that happen sometimes yep. too. Even Mary Bell. Yep. Tim's mother said, quote, Vince Lee got help. Good for him. Maybe he's feeling better today. My son's still dead. What if he chooses not to take his medications? We know what he's capable of. Mm -hmm. 
And that just goes along with what you were just saying. Yep. And so like just to let them out into the community, that's fine and good. But who's doing wellness checks? Right. Who's keeping track and making sure that he is taking his meds? Like does somebody check on him weekly, monthly? Like is there any accountability that way? There needs to be some accountability throughout the rest of their lives then. Oh, I agree. If he went off his meds, he could easily decline again. Yep. And start hearing those same voices and something similar could happen. That's right. Yeah. But then I guess you open up the argument that anybody with a mental illness is could be capable or anybody even just without a mental illness is capable of all those things. Who's checking up on everybody else? Right. And that is one thing I've learned doing this podcast is anybody is capable (laughs) (laughs) of killing you. So beware. (laughs) Choose your friends wisely. (laughs) That's why our children aren't allowed to do anything anymore. That's right. But it is a very tricky situation, right? Mm-hmm. Because a mental illness is not their fault. No, not at all. That they have all. that mental illness. No. Nope. I'm not opposed to them going to a mental health facility. Nope. Getting treatment? Absolutely. Yep, for sure. But like we said earlier in the case, I feel like he could have done his sentence there mm-hmm. rather than just, oh, we'll wait and see. And when he's well enough, we'll release him. Which was in eight years? Seven years. That's not enough time for taking someone's life. No. That would feel like insult on injury, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. No wonder Mm -hmm. that his family is angry about it. Yeah. It was second degree murder, right? Yeah. So what is the standard time for if you commit second degree murder? So in Canada, it's still a life sentence for second degree murder. The only difference is that parole eligibility happens after 10 years at the discretion of the judge. Okay. So they can get out earlier, but it's still a life sentence. The other thing for us to consider is it's not just a second degree murder charge. He should have been charged with dismembering a body, dismembering cannibalism. Yeah. You know, all these other charges he could have been charged with. Yeah. If they really wanted to, they Mm -hmm. could have added a lot of years to a sentence for him. And so for me, somebody needs to be checking on him for the rest of his life because that's what his sentence would have been. No, I totally agree. And I mean, I could be wrong, but I don't even think it stays on his record then. He wasn't charged with a murder. I read that in one source that if he got released from the hospital, it wouldn't be on his record, which is super scary. It is scary. Yeah. Hold on. I'm going to look that one up. Okay. This is from the RCMP, and it says that if you're found not criminally responsible, we keep this non-conviction record for at least five years. So it could. It could be off of his record then. Yep. I don't know how you can like chop up somebody, decapitate them, and not have that follow you. Yeah, that's crazy. It is crazy to me. Canada, what are we doing? (laughs) We don't have to be that nice all the time. (laughs) We are strong believers in reform. We are. And with that, that is the stick in your head and never get it out. Tragic and terrifying story of a mentally ill man who murdered, decapitated and cannibalized a young man yet lives free in Canada today and who we hope never stops taking his medication, Vincent Lee. Such a disturbing case. So disturbing. And so interesting for all those reasons that we've already talked about. Mm hmm. I hope McLean's family is finding some peace. Yeah. Because that's a horrific thing to have to overcome. It really is. I don't think you'd ever really recover from that, but maybe find some peace. Yeah. There's a famous Buddha quote. I can't remember exactly how it goes, <laughs> but it's always stuck with me. And it talks about how holding on to anger is like eating poison and expecting the other person to die. Mm. But that would be a hard one. That'd be it would really be really hard. There's no easy path. Well, thanks for sharing that case with us. You're welcome. And there were lots of details that I didn't know about. Yeah, I hadn't heard a lot about Vince's background and just even some of the things that occurred. Yeah, and it was on the media everywhere. It was. Mm -hmm. I remember hearing about the case and just being horrified. But that's why we dig deep here on Buried Motives. That's right. 
And we'll be back next week with another Dig Deep on another case. Until then, have a great week. See ya. Bye. I'm saying, let's go. Thinking like, are you ready to rumble? <laughs> That's because you're surrounded by wrestlers. <laughs> I'm like, that was a lot of words to just say, we're going to Canada. <laughs> so I have showed up today. That's all you're getting. <laughs> That's half the battle. <laughs> I can look it up for you, but then that's going to no. take longer editing. Other cren- crunchies. Other crunchies. This morning was a challenge just starting this case. <laughs> All right, plan B. We have to do that sometimes. Honestly, we're working on like plan G now, but yeah, that's true. <laughs> Vince had auditory hallucinations. <laughs> wow, those sound exciting. <laughs> Let me try that again. <laughs> and I could do it because I'm not actually choking right now. <laughs> Her attention is elsewhere. <laughs> yep. She said the family is in. An, she said the family is in an. an there's three N's in a row. <laughs> I mean, he is the CEO of Schizophrenia Canada, whatever. I don't care. I disagree. (laughs) They're like, get over it. (laughs) And we learned how to open the furnace vent. (laughs) (laughs) We sat down here for months not realizing (laughs) the furnace vent in the ceiling was closed. Yeah, we research a lot of things, but not heat to our homes, I guess. Hey, we're live, pal, and we'd love for you to come check out our podcast, Tales from the Estate. Each week, we talk about our top five favorite somethings. My beautiful wife, Caitlin, likes to share all sorts of random facts. Yeah. Did you know that cows have accents? We did now. But we also review all sorts of snacks and other great things. And so if you love everything random, I think you'd enjoy Tales from the Estate. So come check us out. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Bye. Come on a journey like no other, where you will discover many roads that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life. And the beauty is, you don't need any vacation time for this adventure. The journey will come to you. Join Avery Rich on your very own journey into yoga. Along the way, she will demystify yoga poses and guide you into a yoga posture or short sequence, all in less than 15 minutes. You have nothing to lose but stress. The Journey Into Yoga podcast. It's not for people who like yoga. It's for people who don't like yoga. Follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at AveryRich.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.